Good evening. Turn to John 1 with me. We'll be looking at the first five verses, John 1, 1 to 5. Father, thank you for your people that we can gather together and be in your word. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we may prove what the will of God is. In Jesus' name, amen. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Unless Jesus is God, the gospel is an unfortunate event of a good man needlessly dying, making the gospel not good news, but bad news. To put it another way, unless Jesus is God, the gospel doesn't exist. How important is one's theology? Can it be measured The state of our current culture is beyond anything imaginable to previous generations. We have reached the point where we celebrate the right to kill unborn babies. Dr. Moeller has been very helpful in analyzing this cultural shift. And we see in world history, abortion is not new, but its celebration within an entire culture is a fairly new phenomenon. January 28th marked, or January 22nd, marked the 48th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, where the Supreme Court handed down the decision to legalize abortion. And since that decision, there has not been a quieting of abortion activists, but rather their efforts have become quite deafening. And there is a continual push for abortion rights. As we speak, there is an attempt to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, which at least curbs um, those efforts in keeping people from paying, uh, for keeping taxpayers, excuse me, for paying for abortions. So the question is, how does a culture get to that point? You can't win people to celebrate abortion by telling them to simply change their stance on the dignity of human life. You can't tell them that human life is dispensable and have them naturally agree with you. Naturally, this is a very appalling idea, even to an unbeliever. You have to convince them in order to get them to go and celebrate death instead of life, you have to convince them of a particular logic. You have to convince a culture of a particular theology. In order for abortion to make sense, you have to train people that autonomy or self-rule is the most important right that people have. Women have the right to do with their bodies what they want. Women have the right to not be pregnant if she finds herself in that state. Women have the right, in this logic, to choose. The change is subtle, but the end result is catastrophic. Formerly, life was sacred. Now, it's dispensable. This all happens because of a shift in people's theology. And yes, everyone has a theology. Everyone has a view about God. And he is even often replaced with the God of self. 
The God of self is one of the prevailing gods in our current culture. People attempt to live autonomous lives apart from the God of creation. And when you answer to no one but yourself, and your rights are the greatest good, you can see why abortion would make sense if it gets in the way of you and your best life. Professing Christians also attempt to live autonomous to God's rule. Certainly, all attempts at human autonomy are simply illusions, but they are attempted nonetheless. Self-rule is at the core of every sin, and self-rule can creep into our theology in the way that we relate to God. Whether for good or evil, our theology is at the root of our actions. What we think about God and His Son have everything to do with how we live. Believers have to be consistent Bible readers in order to curb our natural tendency to have bad theology. We don't naturally have good views about God. However, believers have access to the mind of Christ through the Spirit's enlightenment of the Scriptures. Are we filling our mind with the Scriptures so that we can make sure our understanding of God does not consistently go astray? And that's exactly what John wants us to do here as he starts this book. He wants us to be filled with right doctrine. Before he gets into anything else about the life of Jesus, he starts with high theology. Because if we don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, then we don't know God the Father and we don't have eternal life. In our text today, we find something Uh, Not something to do, but something to believe, something to proclaim, and something to hold dear. Faith comes first, and then obedience. There are those who try to do that in reverse with no lasting effects. Faith and obedience are really two sides of the same coin. However, they are sequential. Faith produces obedience, and obedience proves that you have faith. Doctrine matters. All obedience stems from belief in faith. Faith not just in anything, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith that his promises are better than sin. Faith that God's judgments are really as bad as he says they are. You see, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we need to be in the scriptures regularly because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this doesn't just apply to the point of salvation, but to the whole of Christian life. If we want to have a proper understanding of how to live, then we need to be filled with the right doctrine so we have right beliefs about God and his son Jesus. As we consider John, think about the importance of the historical narrative like John. I enjoy thinking about these letters because it really reminds us that Jesus influenced real people. These are real eyewitnesses writing about Jesus in his life, writing not just a high theology that is so disconnected from people, but people who were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ. And then they are telling us about that majesty, and as a result, how we are supposed to live. This is not just some ancient book. 
John was a real man in the first century um, who knew Jesus immediately. John's gospel stands apart from the other three synoptic gospels. John, first of all, is recognized as the author. John the Apostle, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also Revelation. He is the son of Zebedee. He was a fisherman, very uh, common trade in that time. Writing most likely from Ephesus, which is interesting when you think about his book uh, of Revelation, the Apocalypse, when he's writing to the church of Ephesus, he would have been there. Um, and that most likely at this time when he wrote the gospel according to John. Written probably in the latter part of the first century, kind of a big range. People think it's 81 to 96, somewhere in there. It's first century. Uh, we don't know exactly. John's purpose of the book can be found in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John attempted to convince his first century readers, as well as readers throughout all of Christendom until now, that belief in Jesus is the key to life. That's something that we take for granted often, being church people. Jesus is not just the key to life, but to an abundant life, a life that makes sense and has any sort of meaning. This can't be belief in a generic Jesus, though, but rather the word of God who took on flesh, and as Hebrews says, is the exact representation of God's nature. John's testament to Jesus as the Son of God takes on a couple different forms. And throughout the book of John, we see that testament to Jesus through the miracles that he does. That's one of the main purposes of the miracles, is to prove that he is the Son of God. Additionally, not only the miracles, uh, these prophetic uh, fulfillments of the lame being healed, the blind receiving sight, the deaf being able to hear, but also Jesus casting out demons. Something that you just can't do unless the power of God is with you. And that's even what Nicodemus said in John 3. We know that you are from God because no one can do these things unless God is with you. John also wants to point out that Jesus is the, old, is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. And then also, in our particular text today, John wants us to see the deity of Christ that is found here in John 1. John asserts the deity of Jesus even before diving into anything else about his life. Theology matters, and John knows that. Since the deity of Jesus is necessary for the gospel, let's consider the fundamentals for the gospel of the gospel before we unpack the deity of Christ. This is not new to you all, but the gospel is good news in which there is an assumed reversal of bad news. If the, good, if the good news, if the gospel is good news that comes secondarily, what was the bad news that was primary? This is very important to think about when we are doing evangelism. You have to give them the basics of the things that we just often assume. 
It is that our sin has made us enemies of God, which is our biggest problem, not just one of our problems. It is our biggest problem. Sin is egregious. We didn't just offend a friend. We didn't just offend a boss. We didn't just offend a president, a monarch, or even some lofty angelic being. We offended the God of the universe. And so even in David talking about in Psalm 51 when he is confessing his sin, his sexual immorality, even though there were a lot of people involved in his sin, he still understood a key element to his sin when he said, against you and you only, I have sinned. That was the biggest problem with his sin. That is the biggest problem with all of our sin. As a result, we have a God-sized problem that can only be fixed by a God-sized solution. Theologically speaking, Brian has said it this way, divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. Even the smallest sin against an infinitely uh, good God deserves an infinite punishment. Even the smallest sin. Unrepentant sinners are sent to hell not because of the amount or because of the type of sin, but because of who they sinned against. Now, how can such intensely bad news be negated and turned on its head to be good news? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ only makes sense if Jesus is the God-sized solution that is needed for our God-sized problem. Jesus has to be 100% man in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest, but he has to also be 100% God in order to walk out of the grave three days later after taking the full wrath of God. Mere man cannot do that. A man cannot take God's full wrath in its infinitude and walk out of the grave on the third day. Jesus has to be 100% God. John wants to emphasize the deity or the godness of Christ so we can have a correct theology. Because if our understanding of Jesus is correct, then we can, through faith, take part in eternal life. That actually starts now. And as he starts here, in the beginning was the word, John 1.1. John is using Genesis language that we would be familiar with here. Language that's resonant of the creation story. Now, John wants us to catch this close correlation between the word um, and the God of creation in Genesis 1. Paul also picks up this Christic creation theme when writing to the Colossian church in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, which says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Also, when we consider John's use of the word word here, understanding that its original uh, Greek counterpart would be logos, and understanding how logos would have been used in the Greek culture, it is often a thought that it is an impersonal principle of reason 
that has formed the universe. So that's how the Greeks of the day would have understood the Logos, this impersonal force that was part of creation. Now, John is going to play off of that. It's not only a Greek concept, because the Logos is also found in the scriptural with a scriptural understanding of the Word, which is the Logos. In other words, God has always operated through His Word. That's how He creates. In the beginning, God spoke things into existence. That's how God communicates. That's why we communicate through words. That's how God reveals Himself, through the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And most importantly, Jesus is the fulfillment of not only that Greek understanding of the Logos, but more importantly, the Old Testament understanding of God's Word become uh, having taken on flesh, incarnate. John speaks of the Word as another reference for Jesus, and this is really made clear in verse 14 when he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because up to that point, he's simply using the term Word. But when he says in 14, he took on flesh, he is immediately connecting this to Jesus. Now, the Word existed even before he took on flesh because in the beginning was the Word. Now, this Word, as we see in our text here, was with God. This is important to understand because we see that Jesus is separate from the Father. The Bible does not teach modalism. So when we finally come to terms with Jesus being God, we then have to understand the things that it does not teach. Modalism is an idea where the Trinity, the Godhead, simply takes on different modes of manifestation. So God might manifest himself as the Father at one point. In another point, the the Father might manifest himself as the Son. These are just different modes he's taking on. That is not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture does not teach God just changing his mode. But rather, Jesus is separate from the Father, and we see that because here, not only was he God, but he was with God. The doctrine of the Trinity comes to view in this text. The Word also was God. In that statement, the doctrine of the Trinity is crystallized. Jesus is separate from the Father in personhood, but equal in essence to God. And if we want to see all three persons of the Trinity at play, you can look at passages like John 14, where Jesus says, notice all of the interplay here, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be with you. The doctrine of the Trinity is hard to understand, but realistically it's non-negotiable. It's not a second or third tier issue. There are many second and third tier issue doctrines that Christians can disagree on. But if you don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity, then you're not a Christian. It's kind of like 
What's another example of a first-tier doctrine? The virgin birth. If you don't believe in those things, you're just not a Christian because you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe the revealed Word of God. Now, as far as the Trinity goes, we believe it because it's in the Bible, not because we can fully make sense of it. Now, don't misunderstand. The doctrine of the Trinity makes perfect sense. God has no trouble understanding it. It is perfectly rational within his understanding. And there are many mysteries and theological tensions in the Bible that we have to accept even if two seemingly opposing ideas are presented in the text. This is known as antinomy. And you have two logical ideas that seem to oppose one another. But they don't always oppose one another in that case. As a matter of fact, it's pretty arrogant to think that God's reality will always make perfect sense to us with finite and fallen minds. God transcends our four space-time dimensions that he created for us to live in. He is not confined to the way that we experience reality. So the Trinity, hard to understand. That doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus is dual nature of 100% God and 100% man, that's hard to understand because that equals 200%. But that's how the scripture portrays him. These mysteries of God's total sovereignty and man's responsibility, this antinomy that we find in scripture doesn't have to make sense to us in order for it to be true. The word was in the beginning with God, as John continues here. Jesus has always existed. There never was a time when the Son was not. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, but the incarnation is not the beginning of his existence. And we can even think this is not a new battle that the Christian church has fought, going all the way back to Arius in the 4th century, uh, where you have some of the giants like Athanasius who are, are battling this type of uh, heresy where, as the chant went, there was a time when the sun was not. Why did they even come to that conclusion? Because if he is the begotten of God, then there must be a time when he was not. And John wants us to understand that the word, this logos who took on flesh, was in the beginning with God. There was never a time when the Son was not. Jesus was always and has always been there. When the Jews questioned Jesus concerning his claims of greatness and offer of eternal life in John 8, they said, You are not older than our father Abraham, are you? Who died? Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that's bad English. But first of all, he wasn't speaking in English. Second of all, he's quoting the Old Testament title for God. Before Abraham was born, I am. He is before all time. Hebrews 1, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions and You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. This is all talking about the Son. 
They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. John continues to drive home the creation activity of the Word when he says all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. He really wants to reiterate that. God's sovereignty is total in scope. And there is nothing outside of the purview, the realm of authority, of the Father and the Son. The same Jesus who walked around on Middle Eastern dirt is the one who spoke it into existence. He created everyone that he passed on the street. He created every tree that he used for shade and every fruit that he ate from the tree. He had authority to create, to heal, and ultimately to forgive sins, which are all things only God can do. Now, if Jesus is the only, the, if Jesus is the only creator, all things came into being through him, then that means, by implication, that we cannot create. You're saying, well, that's obvious. Why would you even say that? At first, this seems like a very obvious statement. However, false doctrine is not always as obvious as we would like it to be. Satan's lies are a lot more subtle than our intellect can keep up with. This is in direct opposition to the word faith movement, the prosperity gospel, or Uh, what is even becoming a cultural sensation today known as manifesting. Manifesting as a movement is one's ability to create reality by thinking about it. It's been put this way. If you lack something and you want it, then then you need to dwell on it enough and to stir the universe to come to your aid. If you want your situation to change, then you simply need to manifest a better life. Now, to some young people, this seems as a new enlightenment, but this is certainly old. This is not new. In American thought, this movement goes back to Phineas Quimby, who had patients such as Mary Baker Eddy, the the founder of Christian science. Now, there are certainly differences between Quimby and Eddy, um, mainly because um, Eddy bases her stuff on religious inclinations, whereas Quimby is more individualistic. However, Satan is very subtle because he is able to mix humanist ideas with religion to make them more palatable. This fusion still exists today with the power of positive thinking going all the way back to the 1950s and today with the prosperity gospel and even more recent with manifesting. This idea that we can create what we want simply by thinking about it. We cannot create reality, but rather we need to accept the reality that Jesus has created. And a big part of accepting reality is called contentment. Not being worried about what we don't have. Additionally, Jesus' reality offers the only way to be right with God. And the only way to have life in abundance. 
John warned of things like this in another letter, 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Now, even Christians who do not buy into the whole New Thought movement, going all the way back to Quimby and with manifesting today, even Christians can still be guilty of manifesting, as silly as that sounds. The way you and I are guilty of this is through our anxiety. It's through our worry. Anxiety or worry is a form of trying to control your situation with your thoughts. Anxiety is a form of introspection that dwells on changing things outside of your control. And it's a downward spiral because it starts with an attempt to control the unknown or even an undesirable situation, um, but it turns to more anxiety quickly when your thoughts don't actually change anything. Jesus dealt with this in Matthew 6 when he emphasized the need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let God take care of your needs and worries. Now, he even asked the rhetorical question in verse 27 of chapter 6 by saying, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Now, that rhetorical question had an answer, and it was no one. So why do you do it? Why do we worry about anything? Why do we manifest to hope our situation changes? It's really futile, and it is an attempt to change reality. Christians are not called to live selfish lives whereby we go around manifesting or hoping our situation changes or manifesting our dream, into, our dream life into existence. But we are to live in a, re- a reality that only Jesus can create for the purpose of serving others. Contentment allows us to enjoy what we currently have so that we can focus, um, and so that our focus, rather, is toward the service of others. This word not only creates reality, in John 1, 1 to 5, but he offers a reality that is full of life and purpose. Notice in the text, in him was life. As we cross-reference the scripture, we see James 1, 17 talking about all good things, or we could say things with life flow from God, with whom there is no uh, shifting shadow or variation of turning. Our sinful lusts are always making the statement that God is holding out on us. And so I need to go get something that I don't have. I need to go get something that's not in his storehouse. What God does not offer, we need to be reminded, is not a blessing. The sins that he prohibits do not make your life better, but worse. Psalm 16, it's only at God's right hand 
that we receive pleasures forevermore. And who's at God's right hand? Jesus is at God's right hand. Jesus himself. Also notice here in the text that we see the life that God has is literally within himself. In him was life. Now, God is the only thing in the universe that is self-sustaining. We could coin it this way. It's it's not something I've made up by any means. Uh, But the aseity of God. Literally, the aseity, uh, or the word aseity means from oneself. Now, there is nothing in creation that is of or from itself. Everything has a creator. Everyone has a creator. Everything came from something else. And we as Christians know that something else is someone else. God has created everything. But where does God come from? God has no creator. He is from himself. He has always been here. He has no... Um, He has no beginning. He takes no counsel from anyone. That's fascinating to think about. He doesn't need to take counsel from anyone. He is literally from himself. And this is very hard to understand and comprehend when we think about God, but it's tantamount to him being a God that is so different than us who is worthy of worship and can always and totally come to our aid. This word offers life and shines the light on the path that leads there. Notice in the text, the life was the light of men. Now, the first day of the first creation day in Genesis included God speaking into existence the light of the universe. And now, God's final revelation is the light of men. The light in Genesis is referring to visible light by which we see everything else. After the fall in Genesis 3, we are no longer able to fully see things as they really are. We can still see what's in front of us, but we have, but we have become spiritually blind. The light in John is referring to the light of men by which we rightly see everything else, restoring our spiritual eyes. The light that allows us to see not just a generic God, but a personal God that reveals himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Consider John 8, 12. Jesus is the light of the world, and those who follow him will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We are truly blind without Jesus. Even the other disciplines that we study, like science and history, they don't come into focus until Jesus sheds light on them, revealing even their true purpose. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Even the world we inhabit, none of it makes sense without Jesus being this light. Now, even with this awakened purpose for creation, as it points to the Creator... We will never know God in a salvific way unless Jesus sheds the necessary light, the light of himself. Jesus is not just another prophet, but he is God. He is the Son of God and, and, as we said in Hebrews, is the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. As 1 Timothy 1 says, 
God is invisible. And so we have no hope of ever seeing him unless Jesus reveals him to us. And that is exactly what he does at the incarnation. In John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In the battle between the darkness and the light, there is one who is clearly stronger. A cosmic duality between good and evil, light and darkness, where both sides are equally matched, is the furthest thing from what John is trying to portray. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. (coughs) First of all, we cannot discern spiritual things on our own, and without outside aid from the Holy Spirit, we will never comprehend the things of God or the mind of Christ. Even more to the point, in this passage, is that the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, this is the final word of victory. Darkness has not comprehended it or overcome it. And it makes me think of uh, Pastor Brian's recent light analogy. When the light, the light always wins when you walk into a room and turn the light switch on. The darkness never loses. I mean, sorry, the darkness never wins and the light never loses. And in this case, the light or the darkness cannot overcome it. Now, John is still employing a creation motif here. The agent of creation is also the agent of new creation as he overcomes this evil one. Now, the more we believe in the glorious deity of Christ, the more we will actually believe that he can come to our aid in time of trouble. This is why theology matters. We are anxious either because we don't believe he is God or we don't dwell on it enough. The troubles of our day and in our culture become a lot smaller when we believe and dwell on the fact that Jesus is not only a man, but is God, the Son, who employs complete sovereignty over our present culture, just like he did as the agent of creation when it all started. Evil exists in great amounts, but he is sovereign, and the darkness has lost the ultimate battle. Your union, my union with Christ, should give us hope that we can overcome our sin because our mediator is able to walk up to the throne on our behalf. And he can only walk up to the throne if he's God. Even Jesus' own disciples had trouble understanding that Jesus was fully God and that he was all they needed. Consider John 14. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to to him, Lord, 
we do not know where you are going, how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have known him. Listen what Philip says. This is what we often say in a very subtle way. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus not only came with a willing heart to serve, but he is the only one who can serve us the way we need. Because as a man, he relates to us in our humanity. But as God, he absorbs God's wrath that we deserve and overcomes the evil one. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for revealing yourself in your Son. And then thank you for recording your Son's life in the Bible. Lord, fill us with your Spirit as we read the Scriptures so that we can become more and more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.